Welcome to the Solidarity Winnipeg podcast. Solidarity Winnipeg is working to lay the basis for an eco-socialist political organization. By that, we mean we are a small group of like-minded people who work in a coordinated way in community groups, in unions, and on campuses to build grassroots power, to educate people, to be effective eco-socialist organizers, and to build support for the long-term goal of breaking with capitalism and starting a transition to eco-socialism. Because Winnipeg is located on Treaty 1 territory, we acknowledge that Treaty 1 is the homeland of Anishinaabe, Cree, OG Cree, Dakota, Dene peoples, and the Métis Nation. The Canadian state has carried out genocide, ethnic cleansing, and forced removal of Indigenous people in order to clear the land for settlement by Europeans. The colonization and oppression of Indigenous peoples is not a thing of the past. It continues today. But around the world, Indigenous peoples are leaders in the fight against capitalism and environmental destruction. We have a lot to learn from Indigenous cultures and teachings that will help us heal our relationship with the land and with each other. Welcome to this episode of the Solidarity Winnipeg podcast. On this episode, Solidarity Winnipeg members Misha and Jesslyn have a conversation with authors M.E. O'Brien and Iman Abdelhadi about their new book, Everything for Everyone, an oral history of the New York Commune, 2052-2072. This book is a utopian science fiction novel uh, that is set in a post-revolutionary world. Uh, the book is an opportunity for readers to explore what a post-capitalist future could look like. The novel touches on several themes, including communization, trans-liberation, reproductive justice, mutual aid, feminism, abolition, and organizing, which are all discussed in this interview. Before we jump into the interview, Solidarity Winnipeg would like to thank Emmy O'Brien and Iman Abdelhadi for taking the time to sit down with us and discuss their book. We hope you enjoy the episode. I guess I'll maybe go first. So my name is Jesslyn. I use she, her pronouns. Um, I live in Winnipeg. I've kind of grown up in Manitoba my whole life. I am a member of Solidarity Winnipeg. Um, I'm Misha. Um, I also use she, her pronouns, also based out of Winnipeg and a member of Solidarity Winnipeg. Um, So initially, yeah, I reached out to Michelle about maybe doing something around um, trans liberation and reproductive justice and ended up kind of getting shaped into doing something around the book, which I'm, I'm really excited about. I really I really enjoyed reading your 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 book. It was it was super fun. I I also personally have a bit of a history or a bit of a background in doing oral history, so it was like really fun. I found to read something that was like like a fictional take on oral history. I just never encountered anything like that before, and thought it was a really unique uh, and cool kind of like project. Um, so you know, I'm not gonna try not gonna fangirl too much, but like a little bit. Uh, yeah, and I'll pass it over. We love a fangirl. Don't worry. Wonderful. Well, I will happily be your, your fangirl here. <laughs> yeah. Hearing, hearing people's experiences of the books uh, is quite, quite interesting and quite rewarding. And often people, what people end up saying is significantly more thoughtful than what we could come up with ourselves. So feel free to expand on the book at any length. For sure. I mean, I'm sure you will have many uh, thoughtful things to say. And yeah, I'm excited to get into some of the questions about um, 
yeah, that I, I thought of while I was reading. Uh, my name is Michelle. Uh, I uh, uh, my I write under the name M. E. O'Brien, and I live in Brooklyn, New York. Um, and yeah, I I use she and her pronouns. Uh, my name is Iman Abdelhadi. I use she, her, and they, them pronouns. I am based in Chicago, Illinois, although right now I'm in Brooklyn, New York as well. Um, yeah, and in my day job, I'm an academic. Um, I'm a sociologist um, at the University of Chicago. Um, so this is this is a project of a passion fund project um, that I did with my friend Michelle. I really like the book. I had never, like Nisha had said, um, I'd, I'd never really read a book like oral history that was fiction. So it was a really neat read. Um, and it also really just gave this sense of hope when things aren't feeling very hopeful right now. Uh, so I'm hoping, um, to, uh, to have you guys elaborate on whether or not, um, or like where the idea of the novel came from, what was the inspiration behind some of the characters and the themes, and if you were kind of writing from some of your own lived experience. Um, yeah, so this, Mich- this book was actually Michelle's idea. Um, she, um, wrote a fictional oral history, um, based on, you know, she is an oral historian with the, uh, she works at the, um, New York Public Library's Trans Oral History Project and ran it for many years. I do oral histories through my academic research. Um, so we both had this background and a shared sort of, um, set of political commitments. Um, and so, um, Michelle had the idea of, of writing this book and had written one fictional or oral history that she, um, had published in, a, in an online magazine and then asked me if I wanted to do a whole novel. Um, and of course I said yes immediately because, um, I am a sci-fi fan largely because of being friends with Michelle, who's introduced me to sci-fi. Um, and yeah, I thought it was a, a fun idea. Um, in terms of the, the characters, um, Michelle also ran a role-playing game, um, in 20 or in 2016, I think right after the elections, or maybe it was early 2017. Um, and, uh, we were, it took place in, in the fifties in New York and we were like fighting the fash. And part of her pitch to me for the book was that, um, I could write up my character as one of the characters in the book. So, um, the character whose name is Bilqis Chaudhry, um, that's, that was my character in the role playing game. And she talks a little bit about her time as a, uh, a student in the CUNY system, which is where our game had taken place. I, um, none of the characters are really sort of closely based on my personal experiences. Um, but I, uh, have spent a lot of time at direct action protests and sort of trying to be involved in frontline militancy, particularly in my twenties, which was a long time ago. And I recently wrote up an essay about protest camps and I realized that I could just focus on the ones that I had spent personally spent time at and came up with more than a dozen and I'm like oh okay yeah I did this then back then and I um you know being a part of the handful of huge political mobilizations in my lifetime like you know most recently the George Floyd rebellion uh before that Occupy Wall Street going way back into thinking about the 
um, some of the anti-war mobilization in the early 2000s, anti-globalization protests in the late 90s. And it was very clear to me that like there that this some incredible things happen when people get together and kind of the power is in crisis, things are up for grabs. It doesn't seem clear what's going to happen. You know, the, the moment I remember that uh, there were all these barricades happening in Seattle, 99, and like all these things going on. And suddenly the police were isolated and scared and hiding. And we just had the run of the streets. And it was such a moment of elation and possibility and openness. And I've always been attentive to that when I interview people in oral histories, if people have a kind of encountered moments of vast possibility and drawing on them in myself and uh, thinking about accounts that I've read where how political mobilization has transformed people's consciousness, their lives, their possibility of relationships. And so all of that is really woven in. Um, and there are certainly a lot of people I've encountered in New York that resemble in one way or another certain qualities that of characters here, um, but not in a sort of clean and easy way. You know, there are obviously mismatches of lots of different people simultaneously. Thank you both so much. Um, I think that is really interesting to hear some of the, the, the context for um, for how this project got started. And I, I love that there is an element of like a, a role-playing game that kind of sparked some of the inspiration as a, a role-playing game enjoyer myself. That that's that's so wonderful. Oh, Michelle, it it, it just occurred to me that it's, two of the characters are based on our lived experience because they're us only in the future, <laughs> right? So we we pose as the interviewers as two very old women, um, and so we sort of extrapolated a little bit about our lives and interests, and some of the things that we say in here are there things that we hope to one day do or things that we've already done, um, and so that's, there. there is that element to the book as well. Yeah, and I, I love that element so much as well, because a lot of sci-fi that I'm used to is set really in the, the far future or, you know, in a very different kind of context, whereas, you know, you've inserted yourselves as real, you know, people in this um, and as a time that you're living through. And, you know, the, the 2060s are like, you know, conceivably a time that I will be alive in. And that is a future that is not that far off. So there is a sense of like, things are so different in this, in this world that you've created, but also there's a lot of kind of continuity and you can kind of see how, um, how we might get there in different ways. I noticed in uh, Everything for Everyone, there's a number of key points when, you know, technology is talked about as a, playing an important role in facilitating life in the communes in different ways. Um, specifically, one that I was interested in was like the availability and normalization of uterus transplant technology, allowing anyone who wanted to gestate, uh, as well as like the augmented reality tech. Um, and you know, I was I was curious about this because in, my sense is that you know, in recent years, there's a kind of attitude amongst a lot of the left that's quite you know skeptical towards technology, either kind of seeing you know the false promises of you know, Elon Musk or whatnot, or kind of critiquing technology for the way that it gets used and in, incorporated into surveillance so often. Um, so it was really cool to kind of have this emphasis on the, the utopian element that maybe we don't think about too often. 
Um, so yeah, I was curious, why did you choose to explore um, the importance of tech uh, to the project of liberation uh, rather than say, kind of take this more uh, skeptical uh, approach that um, we often see? I am neither sort of like tech utopian or like tech optimistic nor anti-tech. Uh, I, I don't think technologies play a very central role in the capacity of people to make social change. Like I think, I don't know, there's a book I really love called um, The 2015 Baltimore Uprising, A Teen Epistolary. And it's just all the tweets teens sent to each other while they were rioting in Baltimore. And that's it. That's the entire book. And it's like absolutely amazing. It's just one of the most magnificent things. But, you know, I'm on Twitter. That's not usually what it's used for. So like, but um, so technology doesn't really play a central role in in making the revolution possible or in in making a decent society possible. It helps out a little bit here or there. It's taken up as a tool here or there. But then once people sort of once the revolution gets underway, once people start building new ways of life, they encounter all these technologies in the world and they remake them and they remake them according to new social relations that they're embedded in. And, you know, the U.S. military destroys the Internet and people rebuild it as something quite different. Or, you know, similarly, there's, you know, they encounter sort of old computational systems that are vast, that have built up, but they relate to them very differently than they used to. And similarly, gender is really, you know, dramatically broken up and broken open in this world. And it makes perfect sense that technologies would be adapted and used for that. Um, and generally, I think technologies reflect a lot about the social relationships in which they're produced. And those social relationships are both like alienated and capitalist, but they're also cooperative, you know, like working people develop technologies by working together to try to figure out how to solve problems. And that in a freer society, the technologies would radically change and be remade, but um, but it would be a quite depressing world if we couldn't talk to each other anymore. I think um, for me, it's <clears throat> really important to underscore the ways that <clears throat> the, the current the current moment, especially in how we relate to te technology. You know, these tech giants and these um, these tech billionaires. You know, they've they've helped create the illusion that tech is the purview of the these elite institutions, and that the, it's been sort of made by and for capital. But in reality, if you trace the history of almost all of these major technological de developments, they've been publicly funded. Right. Um, if we think about space technology, for example, right now we're talking about the rich going to space. Space technology was funded by all of us, right? The space technology is absolutely a public good that has been funded by the public. And right now capital is, um, appropriating this collective good. And so I think in this world, all of these goods return to the people. Um, and we basically, we kind of claim the legacy of, you know, um, human civilization. And I think for me also as a person, um, who's lived in the developing world, the so-called developing world and who has lived, um, who has, uh, you know, 
lived in context in which you can see how technology um, is so unevenly distributed across the world. Um, I'm really skeptical of a left that that sort of dismisses technological advancement because um, it is incredibly easy to travel the world and see the immiseration um, that could be lifted by technological advancement. And I think especially in terms of medicine, right? Um, thinking about people scorning the very medicines that others around the world are are begging for, right? Um, I, I find that infuriating. And I think it's a it's a tendency on the left that's absolutely reactionary and regressive. So um, so for me, it was very important for technology to um, be celebrated and to be reclaimed by its rightful owners, which is all of us. I think that kind of leads me into my next question um, about kind of this idea of social relations and how it's changed, obviously, over, um, you know, several decades from uh, where we're at now to um, the future. But a question, like, I had noticed in a lot of the characters' interviews that there was this huge um, emphasis put on organizing, working together, communicating effectively with one another. I think the assemblies was a big piece of that, um, sharing knowledge and um, just really deeply caring for one another. And there, and I think some of them had talked about, um, some of the characters had talked about it not being a political thing, like that is just what they did. And I'm just wondering if you could elaborate on why this was such a big message in the book, um, or it felt like a big message to me anyways, because sometimes I think we're in this moment of time where it doesn't feel like we're collectively taking care of each other because we um, see lots of issues as the individual problem rather than a collective problem. If you could also talk a little bit about, um, I guess, how and why we should be building strong connections and organizations in our community so that hopefully that liberation um, can be the end goal one day. Well, I think as Michelle said um, earlier, you know, I think, you know, she was saying that she drew on her experiences and a lot of these, uh, you know, in a lot of like, encampments and occupations. Um, and I think certainly for me, that was a big inspiration as well um, to think about what have I seen people do in these moments of both sort of crisis, but also of solidarity and collective action. Um, so I think part of it is just practice, right? I mean, I think in some ways we have to, we have to come in contact with each other in these ways to figure out what works and what doesn't. And I think, um, I think there's a sad, you know, uh, the, the tragedy of being on the left is that we're constantly being defeated. Right. And that's because, you know, because we, we haven't, you know, the, the forces of capital, the forces of the straight are, are generally stronger than we are. And I think, but I think we have a tendency to self blame or to, 
to think about, you know, what went wrong in Occupy. I remember after, after the sort of, after Occupy, this was a big conversation on the left, you know, what went wrong? Who, who's, who like, you know, and I think sometimes we confuse, um, who we get a little confused about who our actual enemies are. So I think sometimes in the book, and, and I think I see this a lot in Michelle's chapters as well, is that actually a lot of what we were doing would work <laughs> if we weren't, you know, being actively, um, destroyed destroyed by by the police or you know by the state or by the just kind of needs of survival under capitalism so i i think sometimes you know it's also hopeful to imagine those same processes but under different conditions and to kind of see the value in, in them as well i i've been thinking a lot about the idea of community sort of and a little bit from uh, Marx and Kamat, the, the Marx talks about the he, real human community, the Gemma Weissen. And it's always like an inchoate possibility in Marx in his early writings, like this, you know, this sort of the human essence that links us that is only expressed during these rare kind of glimpses in human history. And I, I, I think it's, it's crucial in trying to make sense of how hard it is to organize and think about our lives, to appreciate how much capital both organizes us interdependently. We're all immensely interdependent. We all depend on millions of other people for our survival every day. All of our work brings us into relation with all these people we know and don't know. And at the same time, capital atomizes us, where our primary relationships with people are either very isolated in a nuclear household or their friendships that are very precarious and fall apart all the time, or their market relationships through authoritarian work environments or through market exchange with strangers. You know, we, we like, I don't know the person who made my shirt, right? They, they live in Vietnam. I've never met them, right? Like, and this, uh, this sort of vast interdependence that is profoundly lonely. And that that's a that's a, like a multi-century phenomenon, sort of bringing the whole world into interdependence with each other and isolating everyone so that we uh, we just cobble together a handful of friends who like move away to get jobs elsewhere or end up in prison or whatever happens. And then we have to cobble together other friends, you know, and it's like a really lonely life that the fantasy of the nuclear family and the couple is like the only way we survive it, right? This idea that someday we'll meet someone and then we won't be lonely. <laughs> and it's it's such a nightmare world that we've made. And I, I feel like at its essence, communism is the opportunity for people to come into relation with each other to actually, for the first time in human history, build community, right? Build a global community that actually includes humanity, but also where our relationships are not market, impersonal market relationships or relationships of institutional domination. But when we have problems with each other on a social level, we can work it out by encountering each other and figuring it out, you know, and that a lot of the revolutionary institutions we imagine, the commune and the forums and the free assemblies are all spaces for people to try to do that, you know, to try to 
encounter community and think about what that means. Um, and, you know, the one place that I feel like people do cobble together something like community that touches on what I imagine it could be is in movements, in collective action, in moments where people are really in rebellion with each other. And those are always very fleeting, like when they're institutionalized into, you know, long-term labor unions or socialist organizations or whatever, all of which I've been a part of, they inherently sort of end up incorporating these very alienated elements that are part of how you reproduce yourself in a in capitalist society, how you survive as an institution in capitalist society. But during these moments of rebellion, when things are not sustainable at all, people encounter each other and it's painful and it's scary and it's complicated and it's often harmful, but they encounter each other as people in a way that we never get an opportunity to do otherwise. Thank you. That's a, that's a really like beautiful picture for the the kind of communist future that your book like imagines and, and thank you for yeah that's that's really wonderful going into a bit of a different direction i loved how at one point in the book there's a an exchange between the interviewer um and the interviewee where it's like talked about how something like uh in this at this time uh, of the revolution, um, something like 40% of people are identifying somewhere within the trans spectrum, like by the, the 2050s. And there's something like, I, I read that and I just, I was just kind of delighted. Like there's something sort of so audacious and fun about that, but also it does raise some real questions about, you know, how these kind of changed relations that you were just describing will also remap the coordinates of, you know, gender and sexuality and people's kind of lived experience of their bodies in so many different ways. And, you know, perhaps allowing people to, uh, you know, have the freedom to explore and open new possibilities for, for ways of being. And I guess my, my question out of this is like, what do you imagine uh, the role for, you know, opening up these possibilities of people's gendered and sexual embodiment, like within this kind of larger transformation? Like, what do you imagine that sort of role is? I, um, I'm a huge believer that uh, there's a very intimate and profound relationship between trans people taking their own gender seriously and trying to think about the sort of what the revolutionary imagination that, you know, a lot of trans people grow up in households and contexts that are very unsupportive and very uninterested and very gender normative, right? The nuclear family structure is very organized in many ways around gender socialization and gender identification. And uh, and then we sort of set out in the world and we have like a secret uh, inside us. I mean, some people come out very early. I was not one of them. I came out immediately after I managed to get on my women's studies program in college. And, uh, but have the secret and have no idea if it will work out, right? No idea if I would ever date again, if I would ever have a job again, if anything would ever work out at all again, but had a sense that it would be a step in my happiness, you know, a step in like figuring out who I was, discovering who I was in the world. And this was, you know, 20 years ago in my case. And I um, sort of following that kind of truth in me sort of both set me kind of cut across all these expectations that I had of my life. I thought I'd be a union organizer and 
transitioning at that time really excluded me from union organizing in a way that it wouldn't now, but it definitely did then. And I had to really kind of rethink the terrain of what my life was. And I think in a similar way, we, you know, like we have a collective delusion of like life working out if we keep following the paths we're on. And part of what's incredible revolutionary moments is you have no idea if it will work out, right? When people are in rebellion, they have no idea. It's like a leap into the unknown, but it's following us a truth in us, a sense that is very strong, that can be a kind of moral guide in that something else must be possible something else must be better than what we have um yeah and and you know the book is about the overcoming of the family among other so capitalist social institutions and so makes it made a lot of sense to me that in kind of a freer commune structure a lot more people would feel supported uh about experimenting with their gender and expressing gender in a rich complexity and diversity of ways. Um, that, yeah, that was really great. That was so beautiful. I, I was like, as you were talking, it is just very profound and um, you just like really see what things where a future could go. And, and as you were kind of like concluding there, you were talking a little bit about the family structures kind of changing and um, the social relationships in the family really changing. So I, yeah, I I agree that it does make sense that that exploration of gender um, would parallel with kind of family structures changing. Um, I think at one point in the book, you had this comparison of uh, the cult to the communes, and um, there were some parallels there, but then obviously there were some really big differences there. Um, And just, like, I, I guess if you could kind of speak to that parallel that you guys were making, but then obviously the, the major difference being, you know, not the oppression of gender or, um, you know, the violence um, that kind of existed in the cult compared to the communes. Um, and, and I guess kind of just speaking a little bit about that, but then also, um the importance of that social relationship changing and kind of what it would do for families, like having a community take care of children rather than, um, you know, just a mom and a dad or a single parent. Well, I can't, I, I, I'll let Michelle talk about the cult part, but because I think that, that was her um, chapter, but the, the family abolition piece, I think the, the sort of core, um, argument behind um, the family abolition themes in the book is that we are more free if we separate our material well-being from um, 
our family structures, right? So right now, I mean, there's a crazy statistic that you hear in mainstream sociology that um, you can predict like with 80% accuracy people's like income range based on their parents' income range. Um, so essentially, you know, in a society that pretends to be meritocratic and pretends to be pull yourself up by your bootstraps and the best people are going to make it, what we actually have is that your life outcomes are largely dependent on who you were born to, um, who parents you, who you're related to. Um, we see large amounts of inequality in terms of household structure, right? So um, single moms um, versus two-parent households, which two-parent households have money, um, etc. And so um, basically we're imagining a society in which everybody is taken care of, right? Your housing doesn't depend on who you who you love, who your siblings, parents, children are, um, whether you eat or not, whether you have clothes, whether you have shelter, whether you have a dignified existence. And that just totally opens up the possibilities for the types of ways that people can love each other and show up for each other, whether that's in a cohabiting scenario or whether that's, you know, from across the street or at the, um, you know, or eating meals together, um, or whatever. And so, and I, so I think, um, you know, I think one of the things that I've been thinking about is the ways that one of the, one of the ways that, uh, the kind of <laughs> the specter of communism, right, is, is, is produces this idea that we're all gonna have these cookie cutter lives. But really, we already, we live in cookie cutter lives and family forms now under capitalism. And what we're imagining in the book is the sort of intense capaciousness of a world in which, um, we, we don't have those constraints. And so, um, you have a, an intense diversity of family forms. Um, and yeah, communities create what works for them. Yeah, I have a book coming out next spring from Pluto called uh, Family Abolition, Capitalism, and the Communizing of Care. Um, and I, family abolition is something that interests me a lot and has been a, one of the main things I've been writing about the last few years. And a man, I think, very succinctly summarized the kind of ethical endeavor at the heart of family abolition politics. Like what, um, uh, how could care the sort of social, the conditions of social reproduction be universally available to people and care be available to people in a wide variety of ways, both within and beyond the family structure. In, in the novel, we propose a sort of very specific form of this, of the, of the kind of commune as a residential facility. So like a city block, a kind of neighborhood um, of one sort or another. And within the commune, people largely eat together. They, you know, largely figure out consumption together, right? Like they, they, instead of getting your food at a box store or a grocery store, like the commune buys the food and figures out how to cook it and distribute it and a lot of basic necessities and then, you know, makes collective decisions, has healthcare facilities, other things built in. Um, and then within that, um, people, it doesn't, you know, people can move around. It's not a big deal what apartment you live in or what house you live in. And people can family together, as one of a man's characters put it, said, you know, you can 
put together three or four people to raise a child. And if it works out, great. And if it doesn't, some of you could move next door and still be involved in the kid's life, you know. And if you're familying together, then you might have a sort of apartment slightly separated off, but still coming to join the commune for big meals. So it doesn't um, rely on a kind of top-down coordination or like really mandated rules, like the problems of family relationships can be kind of worked out on the ground of people in them. And if uh, a family unit works really well, that's great. And if it doesn't, there are practices that people are always trying to develop to figure out how to support people involved to be safe. One of the inside, one of the arguments of the book, you know, that's more subtle is that as things start breaking down socially, the nuclear family unit. So there's a breakdown before the revolutionary upsurge. The nuclear family unit becomes really untenable. That the nuclear family unit depends on stable access to wage labor and stable access to commodity stores, right? Like, and if these then start breaking down, if capitalism starts breaking down, nuclear families cannot survive. So what survives are all these different kinds of collective living arrangements, some exciting and radical, some really horrific and terrible. And you alluded to the the church fathers of Staten Island, that's like far right, ultra homophobic, ultra misogynistic, you know, authoritarian, fascist cold that takes over Staten Island and the character in it. And she observes that it actually functions like a commune. Everybody within the church was fed. Everyone was housed. Everyone ate together. That like, these sort of cooperative systems become necessary to survive as capitalism starts going into crisis. And, uh, and that the, uh, the commune has to, on some level, ultimately, you know, the sort of forces of radical life need to defeat these kind of evil proto-communes. And the nuclear families, you know, are not, no, no longer a meaningful economic unit in a, in a context of like 20 years of capitalist crisis. I, this sort of thinking about our lives, I think a lot of people are very drawn to communitarian uh, life in different ways. I mean, I'm a Buddhist. I'm a part of a Buddhist religious community. It's very compelling to thinking about moving there permanently at some point. I have been in cadre organizations where people make decisions about housing and work and other things in a way that's semi-cooperative. I've lived in punk group houses at times, you know, and we, and, you know, horror movies are filled or whatever. People join all sorts of cults in the world, in fiction, and we kind of yearn for it on some level. And that's not always bad. I mean, some of them are bad, some are less bad, but the commune, the most radical thing that distinguishes the commune from all these different kinds of cults that we have in our lives is that the commune is a part of a generalized overthrow of capitalism. So that the broader forces that of capitalist society that help make communes so vile, the desperation, the intense dependency, the like the state violence, the broader systems of racial and gender domination that like help sustain evangelical far right 
whatever, like as there's a broader communist transition, sure, there are probably still still some right wing cults here or there surviving around the world, but that they no longer have this sort of broader context, this broader sea of violence that that enables them. And so the commune really only becomes possible within communism, that it's kind of fundamentally unlike group housing arrangements as we understand them. I really like that articulation of there. There is some sort of like impulse within people to do this kind of communitarian life and that can look so many different ways. I mean, this is just a side tangent, but like my main experience with that kind of communitarian thing are mostly like random Christian communes that like I have encountered through my childhood, which most of which were just kind of hippie-ish, not very like far right or anything, but it's certainly not kind of involved in a kind of critique of capitalism in any kind of like political sense and often kind of formed sort of weird social dynamics there, but there is sort of a, a commonality, but also an important kind of um, uh, difference there um, that, that I, I really, I really like the way that you work that, work that through. I was really interested in chapter two, uh, which uh, Iman, you wrote, and which focuses on the the liberation of Palestine and the Levant. I was really struck by um, the, the importance on memory in that chapter. Um, there's a kind of talking about how, you know, the Zionists are very much trying to repress not even just the people, but the memory um, that enables, you know, revolution and uprising to happen uh, and, you know, keeps the possibility of liberation alive. I sort of in my mind was making a connection here between, you know, memory and social reproduction, you know, the ability of people to reproduce their existence and reproduce both the memory of the possibility of uh, liberation as a part of that um, through, you know, sharing history uh, and also sharing visions of the future. And yeah, I was just wondering if you could speak here a little bit about the role of memory um, maybe specifically in this chapter, uh, but also maybe, you know, if you want to get into like the rest of the book as well, um, the connection between both like memory and remembering history and kind of having a speculative uh, imagining uh, of the future. Yeah, um, I I guess I'll speak to this particular chapter. Um, You know, my friend, um, a dear friend of mine was uh, who stayed at my house in Chicago recently. um, And I I share my house with a a dear friend who's also Palestinian. And um, so this friend was at my house and um, I wasn't there because I was out of town and and they were staying there and they, they texted me and said, what is it about, about you Palestinians and your houses, you know, that you know, the house is just Palestine everywhere, right? Um, Palestine on every wall, you know, every single, um, you know, the sort of like, you know, so much za'atar, like more za'atar than we could possibly eat in, you know, in any, uh, in any conceivable amount of time. And I think, um, I think there has been, this active cultivation of memory um, within the Palestinian community and within the Palestinian struggle. Um, it's, and it's really, it's a, it's a practice and it's a ritual and it's, you know, um, it, it's sort of this um, refusal to be erased, right? This refusal to go away, um, you know, this just sense that like, no, we're going to be here and our, we will remember and our kids will remember. Um, and I think that part of why the Palestinian 
struggle is so resonant um, with so many people outside of the Palestinian diaspora is because I think it, it captures so much of the violence of, um, of the era that we live in, right? It's the intersection of settler colonialism, white supremacy, um, um, land theft, um, and, and, and capitalism writ large, right? All of the things, all of the kind of the, the sort of like successive oppressions, uh, you know, the kind of domino effective oppression, um, that, that happens. And, and I think, um, so I think memory becomes, a, a a practice right um and and i think i think what you're capturing and i hadn't even really thought about it this way is that is is that memory also always entails a future right so palestinians will always say to each other at the end like when we when we meet each other you know um or we'll say like next time in a liberate like next year like next time i see you it'll be in a liberated palestine it's like a thing it's like a goodbye right um or like next time we do this like on occasions like at a, at aid you know we'll say next aid we'll celebrate in, in liberated palestine and so so that the intertwining of of past and future i think has been such an important part of how palestinians have survived um in one of the world's largest diasporas right um so i think i mean and for me on a kind of personal note like writing this chapter um uh, I just, you know, I just wept through it. Um, I just wept and wept and wept. And, um, and I think, you know, uh, even though personality wise, I think this character is very different from me. You know, I think of her as very, um, a very gruff, you know, um, person and just like very taciturn. And, um, I don't think people would describe me that way. Um, but, um, but I, but I think of her as a version of a potential life, right. Um, that, that was, that felt good to write. Right. Um, and, and part of it is that she's, and I'm going on a tangent here, but part of it is that she's, she's a burnout, right. She's not burdened by the kind of like, immigrant impulse for achievement that (laughs) the likes of me are you know she's just like fuck this like fuck school I was never good at it I'm leaving um and you know I kind of envy her that that sort of like that attitude um but yes I think um but yes, to return to the theme, to the theme at hand. Yeah. But, you know, when I wrote this chapter, I, I just, I was done for a while. I, I couldn't write again for a couple of months because I just, I felt like, okay, what, like, how could I possibly, you know, um, write something else, you know? And Michelle and our wonderful editor were like, wait, there's like a whole rest of the novel <laughs> to get through. So. Um, yeah, but thank you for that beautiful question. And it was, it was really nice to reflect on that. Wow, that was, uh, that was wonderful. I wasn't expecting that response. And, um, I, yeah, thank you for sharing because I also didn't know that, you know, that's how Palestinians respond to each other's next time we'll be celebrating the liberation. I think it was in the last chapter, if I remember correctly, where there was this kind of talk about geography um, and that, you know, even though the book focuses on 
um, New York, there was revolution happening everywhere. And we had to kind of keep in mind that um, things weren't just happening in New York, but around the world. Um, And I think one of the quotes that really stood out for me was, um, geography in a historical telling is a charged question, one that we need to do a lot more thinking about. And so that kind of really got me thinking about understanding the connection between places and struggles and what could happen here, um, could happen elsewhere, or there's precursors to, um, you know, what's happening maybe south of the border in the U.S. compared to what's maybe happening in Canada. And so I was in in thinking about, um, you know, reproductive uh, rights and trans rights in the U.S. right now and how circumstances aren't maybe so different here in Canada. Um, They are different, but they're also not so far off. And so I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about why the left should be engaged in all struggles and why the struggle for reproductive rights and trans trans liberation, regardless of geography, is an important one for people on the left. Yeah, um... I, I think there's an extremely toxic uh, uh, politics that is circulating on the left that that sees a need to distinguish between identity politics and class politics. And, you know, they're reacting against neoliberal identity politics, which is obviously super bad and kind of a, you know, a really class scam. But um, but imagining that social democracy or the left is or socialism is about like appealing to a kind of normative white male working class figure in their own imagination. And that that if you like cater to people's bigotry, you can sort of unwittingly draw them into supporting socialism or Medicare for all, you know, which is a campaign that is unfortunately, I mean, it's been the the most serious militants of it in the U S are disabled people and people with severe health conditions, but it's also, there's a whole win of Medicare for all people who really like to strip that away to kind of try to figure out how to emphasize it's like quote unquote universal by which they mean like white. And I, I think that that is so destructive. It's just completely misreads the basic relationship between how oppression works under capitalism. And I'm, you know, like, I don't think everything is necessarily part of a grand functionalist conspiracy by capital. You know, I think the anti-abortion movement in the U.S. is largely driven by misogynistic right-wing Christians. And the capitalists are like, ah, abortion, no abortion, whatever. It's not, it's all the same. Unless they happen to be kind of personally right-wing wackos, which of course many of them are. But, um, but the, so, but that the capital works to fragment our lives to produce hierarchies, to make all these sort of questions of basic social rights, like um, they none of them are guaranteed, right? They all require political struggle to have a basis of freedom. And that in that we are the like constant, the, it's the sort of the periodic waves of kind of fascist attack on socially marginalized people is so 
built into the logic of capitalist crisis and capitalist society. And that we, um, that uh, people are much more likely to fight very hard around issues that are personally really impact them and that are resonant around their bodies and resonant around the immediate conditions of their lives. And the left needs to be a force if it's to be anything that takes that very, very seriously and that is trying to think about how to support all these different struggles happening and around how to link them together, how to establish connections and solidarity and relationships between them. And that, uh, you know, like I, the, when Roe versus Wade got overturned in New York that day, I went to a rally and it was, you know, there were tens of thousands of people. There was remarkable. And periodically someone would yell out, let's march to Foley Square. We were miles away from Foley Square and like several hundred people would pour out and they would weave through traffic, blocking streets for miles, end up at Foley Square. And then once at Foley Square, we kept seeing other marches come in, each of like 500, 1,000, 2,000 people. And all of them were led by teenage girls. Like all of the militancy I saw there was like girls who were like 12, 13, 14, 15 years old. And the like intensity of the stakes of it for them were very, very real. And it, uh, I mean, I, abortions, you know, obviously profound human right, a profound ethical necessity, a, you know, it's absolutely necessary to have sexual freedom at all, to have sex for pleasure at all, like all these, you know, things that make it enormously important as an issue, but it's also enormously important for the ways that it speaks to really profoundly personal, very important issues in people's lives of uh, a basic sense of dignity and freedom in our own bodies. And that, uh, that it's, you know, any idea of the left that thinks that that is a secondary thing is ultimately one that's going to end up getting sucked into some sort of alliance with fascism. I hope you'll indulge me with like a little bit of a theory question. Um, but um, so the book draws a lot on like you you mentioned communization a number of times throughout the book um which is you know a left-wing political tendency often associated with the journal endnotes um there's a lot more that could be said about it um but um you know one thing i was thinking about when i was reading it i could see some you know readers of you know diff different like left-wing political traditions you know having this kind of knee-jerk reaction or kind of getting caught up in the the nuances of like how a revolutionary scenario would really play out uh, and, you know, I, I think that 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 feels kind of like not super what's like important uh, in some ways. But I was wondering, like, if people with kind of disagreements with communization theory can kind of get this past this initial reaction, like, what do you hope that they uh, get out of the book? Uh, and perhaps another way of putting it is like, you know, what does kind of communization specifically have to offer uh, or teach people on the left more broadly? Is there kind of a uh, a thing you want people to take away um, about that specific um, political. Michelle, I think you should take this one. I think your answer to it is much more coherent and you, you have a much better understanding of, of this tendency. There are comments that you made text. though, that are very, very relevant to this question about 
uh, like people ask if we're anarchists and I, I don't identify at all as an anarchist, but uh, I, I mean, I did 20 years ago, but not now, but a man has spoken repeatedly about how crucial it is in our book that the crisis of capital is congruent with the crisis of the nation state, that like there cannot be socialist nations in how it's formulated in our book. And given that we take indigenous sovereignty seriously, you know, the overthrow of settler colonialism, the liberation of Palestine, like our adamant rejection of the nation state as a progressive form is really central to the politics of the book. And a man played uh, a more central role in sort of thinking that through than I did. Um, I, yeah, I, I think what I would say uh, in, so who knows how the revolution is going to happen? Nobody knows. We have no idea. Like there was a like plausible path to socialism in the minds of lots of people during a, a, a specific historical period. And that passed. And now, you know, you have to be really dogmatic and delusional, and very narrow minded to think that you have a like plausible route to socialism that you need to convince lots of people to buy into. Communization is not that. And this hopefully this book is not that right. This book is not a manual for how people should struggle. If anything, I just hope it encourages thousands of more people to write revolutionary science fiction novels, but um, that have all sorts of ideas and scenarios. And we, you know, we're, there's been a protracted crisis left for a long time where there are very few sort of cohering visions, right? I think basically police and prison abolition is one of the only cohering visions of the last several waves of struggles that really made any sense at all. Um, and we, I, I think that that crisis is not one that we can easily overcome. And we have to think about it very hard. But communization offers a lot of things that I like as a set of theories. Um, I mean, I just sort of referenced, I think it theorizes the crisis of the left in a really effective way. I think it's very useful for sort of making sense of why um, a particular path of socialism made sense uh, for a hundred years to nearly everyone, but it isn't quite what Marx said, and it isn't anything that makes sense to very many people now. So, you know, I think there's a lot of theory there, but one of its claims I, I, I think is pretty strong is that capitalist social relations have a tendency to persist and reproduce themselves, that that's really built into the logic of capitalist society. And that if you sort of try to put together a version of socialism that maintains the nation state, wage labor, authoritarian workplace dynamics, the private nuclear family, like all of these capitalist social institutions. What you have is not socialism. It doesn't have the, it isn't ethically socialism. It won't lead to communism. It won't undermine its capitalist foundations, that it will in fact be a reproduction of capitalist society, a new way of subjecting people to the regime of impersonal market domination. Um, and that, you know, that that what the benefits are or not of what might be called state capitalism could be debated or the Soviet Union, 
but uh, there was no evidence that it was leading to communism. And the people who are really adamant that it was leading to communism now argue that China is leading to communism, like one of the capitalist superpowers in the world, right? Like it's it's like such a ludicrous way of thinking. And that um, actually taking that very seriously, that like the path to communism is figuring out how to generalize communist social relations. And that the starting point should be trying to think about what kind of relationships to people, between people, help open on to a a communist society. And there we could say things like protest camps and looting and, you know, like mass theft and, you know, all sorts of, we can like imagine stuff, but like, this is a much better starting place for trying to think about what communism is than a party that is committed to ruling the state um, as somehow a representative of a working class that is sort of permanently excluded from power. I hope that this book makes communization just sound like a perfectly accessible, popular, nice idea. Oh, I think it was. I I felt like it was um, very accessible. You really got the themes. Like it was, it just made a lot of sense to me. And then also, like I said at the beginning, it really just gave that feeling of hope when things haven't felt so hopeful. Um, I know we kind of talked a little bit about this, but do you want to read a favorite passage of yours from the book? Um, I guess I'll read a little bit from chapter two since we talked about it. Um, and I'll talk, you know, maybe since we talked about that, um, memory bit, I will read, um, just part of that quote, um, so, uh, I, my character, <laughs> me projected into the future as interviewer asks, um, Kaukab, how do you end up moving to Palestine? And she says, I'd grown up hearing about Palestine through my grandparents and my parents. It was in the air in Bay Ridge. Honestly, I'd been dreaming of Palestine my whole life. Sometimes I'd have to remind myself that I'd never actually been there because it was just so present. It was always there. They wanted us to forget, you know, that was the whole plan. The Zionists, they thought the old will die and the young will forget. Well, we made it our business never to forget. Every house in this area was like Palestine. We took it with us everywhere we went, used any chance to remind ourselves and everyone else that we were an exiled people, that our land had been stolen. I can't believe they thought we'd do anything else. Anyway, where were we? Um. Uh, so I asked, uh, I'd asked how you ended up in Palestine. And Hassan says, oh, yeah. When the uprising first began, I wanted to go. Gaza had been under siege for like 30 years or something. Since the, way before I was born. No one in or out. People had water for a few hours a day. Electricity at random times. It was a big fucking prison. With two and a half million people crammed in. And they'd bomb it every few years. Brutal shit just relentless, and people from Gaza would just have to build, rebuild over and over and over. When I was four, I remember they bombed. Those were some of my first memories, watching those buildings fall on stream, people sifting through the debris of their homes, and all that. Anyway, when I was 16, and Thawrat Gaza started, I was ready. You didn't have to tell me twice. I had been working odd jobs around the neighborhood, 
mostly under the table since I was 14, had a little money saved up, just enough for a ticket. I ask, they let you in? He said, who, the Zayos? <laughs> of course not. We flew into Egypt, hitched a ride to the Sinai and crossed the border. And I'll let listeners um, finish the journey with um, with Kaukab, uh while reading the chapter. Uh, yeah, thank you. I guess, uh, where can people find your book? Uh, go to your bookstore, your local bookstore, and tell them to order it. I, if you're, uh, it can be ordered online through Common Notions, um, but I understand that's expensive shipping-wise for Canadians. It can also be bought in any in, in of the online book sale websites. But um, telling your local bookstore to order it might encourage them to actually carry it, which is something that we would like to see happen. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Solidarity Winnipeg podcast. If you'd like to learn more about who we are and what we do, you can check us out on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Solidarity Winnipeg. But really the best way to keep in touch and follow what's happening in Winnipeg is to sign up for our newsletter at www.solidaritywinnipeg.ca. If you want to reach out to us directly with questions or comments, you can send us an email to info at solidarity winnipeg.ca.